All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. Uh, to start us off with the real lyric of the day, this is from uh, Kanye West's uh, 2008 album, Graduation, um, from the song Good Morning. So he says, the third verse goes, Good morning, look at the valedictorian, scared of the future while I hop in the DeLorean. Scared to face the world, complacent career student. Some people graduate, but be still stupid. They tell you, read this, eat this, don't look around, just peep this, preach this, teach us, Jesus. Okay, look up now, they didn't stole your streetness. After all of that, you received this. I was actually, uh, back in high school, that was the, the, the first or the, the first two lines of that, the good morning, look, look at the valedictorian, scared of the future while I hop in the DeLorean. Those were, uh, that was my yearbook quote back in high school. <laughs> but anyway, um, today or tonight, I am joined with my uncle, Howie, Howie Beerbaum. Um, Howie uh, is... A really interesting guy. He has actually been a tour manager for the, the internationally renowned band uh, Pink Martini for seven and a half years. Um, and before that, he was uh, for three and a half years, he served as he was a co-founder of the Wonder Ballroom, um, a, a, a music venue right in Portland. Yes, 800 seat or 800 capacity uh, music venue. Uh, that we opened in 2005 and I managed for the first three and a half years. I was one of the partners in the building and I managed the business for the first three and a half years. Gotcha. And that's actually kind of uh, almost kind of what I wanted to start with um, as far as, you know, the the entrepreneurship aspect of things and, you know, how, I guess your decision, why did you originally want to start wonder ballroom and how did can you just talk a little about how that ball kind of got rolling and became more of a reality uh sure i was approached uh in 2004 a building in northeast portland a former it's been a lot of things but it was uh originally in 1913 it was built and opened as a hibernian hall which was a fraternal community center for Irish immigrants who a hundred years ago were the persecuted group of the, of the day, along with Jews and Italians mm -hmm. and Eastern Europeans who we now seem to totally embrace. So a hundred years makes a big difference. Um, anyway, it became open. We heard through the grapevine, it was open on the market and for a ridiculously low price and me and two partners crunch numbers, uh, saw the potential of it as a, music slash community space venue went through the trouble of penciling out whether it should be a nonprofit music venue or community space or whatever we wanted it to be as a nonprofit which would lower the overall cost of renovating the building versus mm -hmm. a commercial for-profit business specializing in uh national music acts with a bent towards some community and local activities. One of my partners is was Chris Monlux, who is one half of Monkey Presents, which is a big rock pop promoting promoter 
uh, in the Northwest for about the last 35 years. So he was an instrumental player in uh, directing how we should go. He had experience opening venues and, and running venues in the past. And I had worked at one of his venues in the 90s called La Luna, which was in Southeast Portland, uh, a larger room with two spaces, a small balcony stage and a main stage that probably held closer to 900 or 1,000. So um, we bought the building and wrestled with the idea of profit or nonprofit, came up with for-profit and then did spent a lot of money upgrading it and making it a commercial space. We opened in June of 2005, hosted national acts. I don't know if you'd know any of them. There were so many, Feist, Ray LaMontagne, uh, you know, mid-sized thousand seat acts at mm -hmm. the time. And uh, it's still running to this day. It's been in operation for 14 and a half years. And uh, I left after about three and a half because uh, the music business will chew you up if you let it. <laughs> mm. Interesting. <laughs> Especially when you're a manager or if you're um, you have a hot property, be it an act or a venue, it's just a lot to keep it going. And the job basically was consuming upwards of 65 hours a week. And a lot of it was nighttime hours. So I'd work during the day and then at night I'd be there with loud, crowded rock shows. So right. I was just you know, the day, end of the night, usually 1 a.m. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was great doing it. I had also, prior to that, uh, worked front of house management for the Les Schwab Amphitheater in Bend, which hosted really big acts like uh, Willie Nelson and Jack Johnson, stuff like that, acts like that, bigger acts. And uh, that venue held about 7,500. And I did all the front of house management, which was taking care of the vendors, the food, the beer, just monitoring and accounting for all the money, thousands upon thousands of dollars every night. Mm. And um, which is always good. It's always good to have an accounting background when you're doing business and not being afraid of cash a lot. Mm. I, I work now in a vet at, uh, as the executive director of the Saturday market. And some of my, this is not ageist, uh, some of my younger people that work for me are a little intimidated when they see a stack of, you know, $4,000 in 20s because they don't really deal with cash much. It's more of a card world for them. And so they're a little intimidated counting large sums of money, but I dump, I jump right in and I have for years. It's kind of what <laughs> it is. Um, so, yeah, the Wonder Ballroom was a great yeah. uh, experience. What I would say, people always ask me, well, how did you fall into that? I've had a really diverse career. Uh, very few of my friends, I'm, I'm 61, and I graduated college in 1980. Very few of my friends have, as opposed to people your grandparents' age, have um, stayed with one employer their whole lives. And I never envisioned myself working for a corporation or a company for mm -hmm. your oh my plan was to go around and explore different aspects of arts and entertainment so and that's what i've done so for the past 30 odd years i've been doing theater solo performance dance uh venue management artist management to a certain degree 
and some artist agent work. And uh, it's turned out to be an interesting ride. I've done a little of everything. Yeah, in terms that, of the arts. That's awesome. Supporting yeah. Celebrating artists. It's been really, really uh, a fun ride. Exhausting at times, but pretty, pretty fun. So I recommend people when they start out in the arts, um, work hard, volunteer, network, get yourself a good reputation as a hard worker and someone who's honest and reliable and doors will open up and treat people fairly. Don't be, don't be a dick. Mm-hmm. And you related, can, related to, of, yeah. I, I mean, related to that stuff, I'm, I'm curious as far as, you know, going back to with wonder ballroom, when you chose to actually make the decision to, to go in with that and, you know, you had the, the business partners in mind, were they, were those people who whose character you kind of you know were you, you were sure they were solid and how did you kind of go about you know yeah I, really well, I had them both you know Portland is what six hundred fifty thousand people now plus you know probably a million or two one point two or two million in the region but Portland's still a small town and I've been in Portland since eighty one and I knew both guys so. Uh, I had worked with one of them before, and the other one I had known. He was a gallery owner, and uh, I knew him for years. So I had no trepidation in joining forces with them. And, you know, it's a business. I, re- I, I ran the books uh, for the most part. I took care of when we renovated the, be- the ballroom because it needed about $700,000 worth of upgrades to be um, a seven uh, an 800 capacity room so we had a sprinkler it had a, we had a lot of work to do to make it viable as a performance venue so uh i ended up being kind of not the project manager but kind of the project business manager um i didn't hire the contractors and i didn't direct the schedule i, I just kind of paid the bills and had an overview of what was going on uh and all this and there was a lot going on there's a lot of people and a lot of hands involved when it comes time to renovating a building because it was a hundred year old, it needed a lot of work. It, would, it needed all new plumbing, all new electrical. Obviously, a lot of electrical. It was a rundown, old, funky building that we cleaned up. So I learned a lot about construction and renovation through there. Met a lot of people, and uh, we opened on time. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's sleazy people in every business in terms of. You got to trust your gut with every business transaction you do or any transaction you do in life. And I felt Mm -hmm. good about these guys. And um, it turned out to be a really good adventure. I would never do it again. (laughs) I would never I would never run a music venue because it's kind of endless. There's just so many people working in a music venue like. You know, just to run the music venue between the bartender, security and cleaning crew, you're dealing with like 30 plus people that you have to manage and it's kind of tiresome, but Mm. I liked it. I mean, I always wanted to do it and I got to do it and I did it for three and a half years. And when I finally threw in the towel, just because I was completely exhausted, I was turning 50 and I couldn't see myself continuing at that pace of, of 65 hours a week in terminal for, for the near future. I just stopped. I just, gave him notice, gave him a long notice and eased out and um, didn't know what I was doing next. And 
within a couple of days, I got a phone call from Pink Martini because I'd known the band for years and we had done some club stuff together in the 90s. And so I fell into that job and became a tour manager, not knowing what a tour manager actually did. So. Right. I, I, got one more, I got one more question for you as far as back with Wonder Ballroom. Like uh-huh. when you were, so who was, uh, you know, you're talking about the decision as far as whether it should be a nonprofit or whether you guys should go the, the business route, um, um, the for-profit route. And it, I mean, it seems like a huge decision was, uh, w- was it, was there a lot of like, uh, talk as far as, you know, or, or people switching sides? How did that play out? Well, part, there were a couple of factors, um, being a nonprofit meant we would have lower occupancy. It would probably, cause we didn't have to put as much work into it. Uh, so it would probably have been like a three or 400 capacity venue, which kind of ruled out up and coming acts, you know, room that's about 800 means you're catching them on the way up or you're catching them on the way down mm. as far as the, access, because that's kind of a mid-sized room at best. Not really. It's kind of a smallish room. So you're catching emerging artists or artists who were once bigger and are on the slide. You know, the next stop will be a casino or <laughs> at the Oregon. Um, you know what I'm talking about. It's just kind of that's kind of the arc some careers have. And sometimes when you're when you're dubbed a casino act, it's really hard to get back into major rooms. But mm-hmm. casinos pay well, so that's another career arc you can yeah. kind of ride out for a while. But when we, with getting back to Wonder, when we decided to um, make it a for profit, when we kicked around being a for profit or non profit, we talked to our attorney. Um, there was, we wrote down the pros and cons of being a non profit versus a for profit, and ultimately determined with uh, one of our partners' connections to the pop music world, it would pencil out quicker and be more profitable if we went and spent the extra money and turned it into an 800 seat room for popular, Mm -hmm. but not ignoring community fundraisers and other things we could do. So we could kind of have the best of both worlds, but actually make a buck while we're at it. So I know people in the dance community were bummed because we had a big, the room was uh, at one point a basketball court. It was a big kind of, I kind of remember that. Remember that in the early days, I, I feel like you. Yeah, we yeah, you were, you were probably oh boy, five years old, <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, it was a basketball court for a bunch of years, and we. Um, so the dance community was really interested in it because there are, isn't a lot of really nice sprung hardwood floors in Portland, and so when we ended up becoming more of a for-profit and kind of monetarily precluded a bunch of the smaller local dance companies. They were bummed and they let me know about it because I had a history in the dance mm-hmm. community and the nonprofit performing arts world, both small and mid-sized. And I felt bad about it, but I also realized, hey, I'm in my I'm hitting 50. I gotta make some money. Right. So uh, yeah, it was a, a mixed blessing to have a room that big. But it turned out it was the right move to do because it's now 14 plus years later and it's still in existence and still thriving. It has a better sound system and it attracts, uh, you know, national acts. It's got a good reputation in terms of being a venue that people want to play because 
venues around the country, both as a tour manager and as someone who booked acts at the Wonder, if you have a crappy room, the word gets out and the agents hear about it and don't want to play it. So you have to make sure you have comfortable dressing rooms and a good sound system and a reasonably friendly crew to succeed as a venue. The right. location is important. And we built that reputation up over time. Yeah, so I was going to say, it, it must have been, I mean, especially when you didn't have a reputation when you first started it, that must have been especially important to make sure that, you know, the crowd was happy, that the artists were you know, happy with what they were getting, I'm assuming, like in order to to build what you had built, you know, over that three and a half years, right? Well, it looked good when we first opened, but I remember Ray LaMontagne. Do you know who he is? No. Singer-songwriter. Okay. Uh, he hated the room and told his agent, and that's, it was a major agent. So we had to up our game and improve the sound system over time. Uh, it was just not, a, it was an, a dated sound system, an old board. And there, you know, it was just, we didn't have the capital to put in a $100,000 sound system. And we kind of rented a cheaper one and the word got out. So we quickly upped our game and made the room better over time. So, uh, you know, the artists talk. And I, like when I was a tour manager, um, you know, if I didn't like a venue, either the sound or how we were treated or even the catering, I always told our agent, this is kind of an unfortunate, you know, an unfortunate day when you're traveling as and I knew this retroactively when you're traveling as a touring artist. And I was a tour manager. You wake up and you're in another city. You want to have good food in a comfortable, friendly environment. You don't want to go into a janky half assed room with uh, crappy food because, you know, you're trapped in a room all day working. You want all the pieces of the puzzle to work well together. So I think we did that well. And if I were ever to go back to a, be a venue manager, I'd be even more sensitive to the needs of the touring artists because I've been on the receiving end. So Yeah, I, I was almost going to like, ma I, I just kind of made that connection as far as like, do you think like, when, you know, because you had alluded to, you know, once you started as a tour manager uh, for Pink Martini, were there things from, from Wonder where you sort of realized, okay, this is what the artists want, this is what works? so that you could actually, you know, provide those same kind of, you know, services or, or quality that, you know, the band was wanting? Do you, did yeah, you feel uh, that there was some carryover in the skills? Well, uh, as the manager of Wonder, I saw the artist's contract often, the artist's contracts often, as well as their rider. And for the listeners out there who don't know what a rider is, a rider is basically... It details what the artist wants. You know, they want uh, vegetarian food. They don't want uh, they want wild caught caught salmon. They don't want farmed yeah. salmon. And it could be as particular as you want it to be. And I'm sure people can go online and look up huh. crazy writers from artists. You know, I take it uh, the bigger the artist, the the more leeway they get as far as the writer. You do not mess around with a major act with the writer. Give them whatever. I mean, basically, when you sign that contract, you're signing off on the rider. The time to negotiate the rider is before you sign the contract. So, so they when can I just ask whatever they want once it's signed. Uh, I mean, I was I was pretty loose when I was a tour manager. If they, we had a pink martinis rider. We had uh, you could either give us a catered dinner of say, you know, chicken, fish, vegetarian, blah 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 salad dessert 
I personally am not a big dessert eater, so I never went crazy in that particular desserts. I was just like a cookie and brownie tray is fine with me because it's mm. I didn't care. Some artists want, you know, tiramisu or whatever. Let them have it or chocolate mousse. Um, we never went that far. Um, but we also, you know, some artists and Pink Martini was included. The tour manager, when they do the advance with the venue and say, from experience, because maybe you've been to the venue before and the food was crappy. Uh, we'll just take $35 a person and we'll eat on our own. We'll eat in a restaurant, you know. So I was always pretty liberal with Pink Martini, knowing like if you're in a crappy town in Iowa, no offense to anyone in Iowa, <laughs> but if you're in a crappy, you know, crappy part of the country, and there are lots of crappy parts of this country or the world, uh, <laughs> you might want to just opt for cash and then forage on your own. It's more interesting usually to uh, seek out restaurants in a neighborhood anyway i but sometimes you're just too tired there's not enough time you would just want to be catered to literally and figuratively so it just right. depends but i yeah I, open a venue again i would be even more mindful of being kind and uh not generous accurate in, in uh meeting the needs of the artist because it's really hard touring it's uh-huh. a real it's a real kind and you really want to make it easy on them when they're in the venue so uh-huh. I was going to ask about that as far as like, what are the, what were kind of the biggest challenges you encountered as far as when you actually were out on the road touring? Uh, let's see. Anxiety was one because you're on a tight schedule. So what happens is you're given, let's say we would go out anywhere from three to six weeks, typically four weeks because really with a band, the size of pink martini, which is roughly with the bus drivers, the support crew, and the uh, band itself, which is roughly 13 people. You're talking about 20 people on the road. So a day off costs the band or the quote unquote, the company, a lot of money because that's Mm. hotels and food per diem. So you got to really maximize your time on the road. So hold on. Can I just just interrupt you real quick? So so you were you were in charge of deciding like this the as far as the budget of of what money can get allotted to what whether it's the hotel or food is that the, the well, company sort of put you in charge of that or is that not how not your position really was? basically you're given so let's say we did five shows a week and we're at so we're out for a month so it's about 20 22 shows in a month um I had a good relationship with the agent as well as the manager of Pink Martini. They would send me the preliminary schedule and make sure I thought it was doable. Like, you know, sometimes you're in Buffalo and the next New York, upstate New York, and the next day you're in Columbus, Ohio. Can you drive overnight and get there in a reasonable amount of time, allowing for breaks and everything else? So you can actually load in at one o'clock and have a show at eight o'clock. So they'd run everything by me. And then I would, you know, go and look at the, uh, I would look at the uh, Google Maps and see how long it took at 55 miles an hour to get somewhere. And if it was too tight, I'd say, ooh, that's a little rough, but I guess we can do it. And sometimes you get into town late and you just scramble and slap the show together. But my job was basically, I was given the itinerary, the details of each gig, whether we had to buy the hotel rooms or they were provided, and then I had to review every hotel to make sure it was up to snuff 
the catering, review the rider, if it's going to be a dinner buyout or if we're going to pick menus, stuff like that. Every, every basically when you're tour manager, and I didn't know this, I had never been a tour manager. Uh, when I took the gig, the former tour manager loaded me up with some show files and basic information, gave me some pointers. But basically, I just went to the, I went to the bookstore and bought a book on how to be a tour manager. I had no idea how to do it. And ah. the first was rough, you know, the first week or two. And then I started getting, figuring out where you can get hustled by the bus drivers, uh, you know, for extra money because there's overdrives. I mean, it's a whole different world. And yeah. I wise after the first tour, I was very savvy. I saw where the pratfalls were, where I, the band could lose money. And I got tighter with the purse. I tightened things up. And it worked out really well. That's um, interesting that you... I, I hadn't thought about that. And that's that's interesting to hear about you buying a book as far as trying to figure that out. Because that seems kind of like... Uh, like it, I would I would assume that, you know, a, a major... Because at that point, they were, you know, weren't, they were still... Or, or they were at that point, like, internationally renowned. Like, they're a pretty big... Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I came on board, I yeah. started with Big in 08. I mean, they had been on the Tonight Show, Letterman, yeah. late, late with Conan when he was on NBC, uh, so what, NPR, you know, international what, for sure. Yeah. So what? Uh, how? How do you think? Or what did they see in you that you you think that they you know even though you didn't have experience you know being like a like a tour manager for a smaller band but you know obviously they they saw something that you know how he's going to be the right guy for the job you think That's it was just kind happened. of that hustle the well um so what happened was when i left my job at uh wonder ballroom in willamette week which is a local alternative weekly they had like a like a little murmurs column a little gossip column and uh, someone planted i didn't someone planted uh <laughs> the item that i was leaving the wonder ballroom was one of the uh founders creators i was leaving after three and a half years it was just a little three-line snippet someone in the pink martini office saw that and said oh we just lost our tour manager let's call howie and the band managed the band leader thomas lauderdale i've known for years i knew him since 94 so and we always overlapped and worked together on stuff so he called me and said I want you to be my tour manager. I'm like, I don't know how to tour manage. He goes, you'll figure it out. Money is no object. So when you're uh. given an offer like that, uh, I took it. I thought that's a good, that's, I was a little late in life to be tour managing. I was 50. I, huh. It's better to start when you're in your thirties. And what I recommend people do, if you want to go on the road and be a touring person, uh, work your way up, start, you know, if you have a propensity towards sound or lights, go for it, but start by, Try to work in a venue first, being selling tickets, selling merch, working in a bar, whatever. Immerse yourself in the scene at a venue, a pop music venue. And then, uh, like people I know, believe it or not, uh, it, you either, it's pluck and luck. You work, you, you fall into something, your friend's band takes off and they need people. Or a lot of people I know move to Nashville because there's always tour managers mm. out of Nashville and you can hook up there. Um, several people I know moved from Portland and Nashville because there's such a scene there and all the tour oh. bus companies located outside the Nashville area. It's just kind of a hub 
for touring. So, uh, but I'd say, you know, start out on the road as a merch seller. Uh, once you prove your metal by being able to balance the books and not have a, uh, you know, bringing in the money uh, for the band, because merch is hard right now, but if you can at least sell a good amount, a few bucks a head, that's good. Uh, and then work your way up. If you want to be a lighting designer, go for lighting. You want to be do sound, shadow the sound guy. The merch guy that I worked with with Pink Martini was divided between his loyalties of learning sound and becoming a full-fledged tour manager. He had been a tour manager with other acts, but smaller acts before they blew up. He was with the Lumineers before they blew up when they were playing like mm. 300 seat rooms. And then they blew up and they, you know, went in a different direction with a different tour manager. So I told him what I knew. The sound guy told him what he knew. And now he's touring. Last time, I saw him about a year and a half ago when he was in Portland with a alt-country rock act. Uh, the guy's name is Anderson East. You know that name? Mm, no. Yeah, we'll look him no, up. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> he's kind of a big deal. So he lucked out. He moved to Nashville, and he lucked out becoming a tour manager for a major act. And, you know, I think the uh, thing I would impart to people is uh, be reliable and be honest and be ready at a moment's notice. Like, really prove your mettle in a venue or to anyone and get a reputation going because there's the music business is such a sleazy money grab anyway. And without merchandise and CD sales happening, like the road is where it's at and where the money has to be made because no one's selling music anymore because Skype, uh, Pandora, and Spotify pay so measly. Like, what's right. the point? Oh, oh, eight cents a play. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had talked about that last time, and that that kind of baffled me because you know we've seen the the rise. I mean, it used to be. I mean, I remember when it was. Well, first, you know, like, C, you know, uh, CDs, probably people a little younger than me aren't even going to, like, know much about those anymore. <laughs> but I remember, I mean, when it, you know, started, it started with CDs, and then it was like, you know, everything just kind of went digital. Um, yep. But but it was like, you know, you had, you, iTunes is very, like, regulated as far as, okay, this album costs this much, or, nine, you know, songs are 99 cents. Um, but then, you know, you could start just finding, you know, music online from, you know, whatever kind of shady websites or whatever. But I mean, I'm just thinking as far as the progression of it goes, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of music, uh, you know, in high school or whatever, I just download that way, you know, just download it for free from some link online. But then it's, it's interesting that even though people kind of knew there was, the the free music available um like the fact that like things like pandora and spotify blew up to the degree they did like why do you do you have any ideas as far as why why we saw that well um i subscribe to pandora just because i'm not too fussy with my music i mean spotify is probably better it's uh because you can play whole albums and really immerse yourself in an artist pandora is a little more restrictive it's more right shuffle more of a shuffle but for me, it's good enough because um, I just want background music when I'm home and we're at, we're at work. And, I, you know, I'm not really it's not the focal point of my of my day. It's just kind of background music. Um, and, it, you know, with BitTorrents and all the other illegal stuff, you can still secure music for free. 
and uh, it really changed. I mean, CDs came in in the mid to late 80s, and now vinyl's back, which was right. the predecessor. Uh, but I think vinyl's more of a gimmick as opposed to, you know, I read somewhere that vinyl sales are topping CD sales right now. Um, mm. I think it's kind of gimmicky, plus the uh, the demand for both are so diminished over the past five years, especially, that um, the artists I still work with or I know about, you need different kind of merch. You need T-shirts. You need, you need music. Pink Mart branch out to music boxes and right. other gimmicks kitschy things because no one's buying the music they don't need to even older people now have pandora in their cars in their buicks so yeah it's just uh it's just the money has if the money uh has to be made on the road and the artists have such a diminished return on cd sales that for like it or love or hate it the uh like uh, aeg or live nation they were the ones that started really jacking the price of tickets up because they realized that you cannot replicate the unique, the unique experience that is a live concert. You can't replicate it. When you watch it on TV, it's, to, it's not the same experience. And they realized, and so did Broadway and other live forms of entertainment realize, people pay a lot of money for a unique, live, ephemeral experience. Um, and now you're seeing concert prices that are absurd. Yeah, but, but, but it's expensive to be on the road and you got to make money because you're not making money. The music is no longer augmenting your income. Right. And that, that, see, that that's still what confuses me a bit as far as why, you know, Spotify and Pandora aren't able to cut artists bigger checks. I mean, why is it something that I mean, obviously, they've gotten so successful, they're making tons of money, you know, as as businesses. Why? Why aren't artists profiting? from them like they were, you know, with CDs or vinyl, you know, like we were talking about. Well, because if you bought an album, well, if, l listen, you're paying $10 a month for Spotify, right? So, uh -huh. so if you bought 10 songs at 99 cents, that's the same price. Spotify, yeah. <laughs> you can buy 1000 for $10. There's no right. money in it. And uh, right. the other thing is, um, I think... Uh, the digital online streaming uh, people are it has set the bar so low for cost. It's so competitive. Five dollars for Pandora. I can listen to 24 hours of music a day on Pandora for what's five dollars, 20 cents a day, five dollars a month. Right. Mm -hmm. So for 20 cents a day, I can listen to 24 hours worth of music. That's a penny an hour. <laughs> so they can't pay the artist much. And right. That yeah. Twelve. So that's why I'm get you're getting paid an eighth of a cent because that's really the model, and yeah. it devalues the music, but it also means that the live performance is more esteemed, valued, and people will pay for it, and they are paying for it. I'm kind of floored by the price of concert tickets. Not that I pay for it, huh. uh, but um, I'm kind of floored that people will shell out forty five, fifty bucks for a standing room show. Mm -hmm. I'm just wow, those shows used to be $12 because now you're augment now without the music sales, the artist has to make much more at the door. So it's right. the new, model, which makes it really, so yeah, you're paying $5 for Pandora, 
but you're paying more for every concert you go to. So you're probably still paying the same amount of money or more than you would have in the old days when people could actually make money off their discs. So the model shifted. It, it'll, it'll shift again. There'll be another branch of technology that changes it again. But it means that live performances, look, going out on the road is a grind. I made good money on the road, but I worked my I worked 15 hours a day. I also did the lighting. So I was the lighting designer. I built the cues, mm. focused the lights, and called the show. So not only did I tour manage, I also did the lighting, which took another two, three hours out of my day. So I got paid well on the road and I had a great time. I'm not I'm not bitching about it. But um, I had to make good money and I expect the artists have to make good money because it's such a grind out on the road. You got to make good money. That's um, because it's hard. It's a hard life waking up and packing and going somewhere else. And Pink Martini went around the world. So sometimes you were literally getting on the plane in Nashville and the next stop would be London. It's Mm -hmm. grinding life. So the audience has to pay the piper in terms of paying for a live performance. Same thing on Broadway. Same, Same thing anywhere. Uh, yeah live live, the live experience has been monetized to the max Mm -hmm. it's interesting to think nowadays i mean there's you you've heard of like soundcloud right Mm -hmm. so you know there's there's a new kind of generation of of artists that have gotten super popular super mainstream you know artists that at least everyone you know my generation's heard of um but you know some of them they never even, you know, tried to sell a song like SoundCloud's all free. They just put up all of their music, built up, you know, a core following and then yep. started touring. And like so that literally like touring was like their first actual like real life, you know, kind of interaction with any of their their fans or, or maybe yep. even putting a face to their um, face to the name, you know, because people are just finding them online like they, they didn't actually exist until like they built up a following and started going on tours. So yeah, SoundCloud, SoundCloud and, and YouTube as well. Throw up a video. Yeah. And you get a following and you get a bunch of subscribers or people following you on Instagram is a big deal. So basically right. the, the egalitarian nature of the online world cuts out, you know, marketing departments, cuts out a lot of people. And, you know, if you hit it and you get lucky and you, you, uh, you know, have a hit song, or a partner of following because people like what you're doing, uh, that saves the artist money too because they're not paying. They eventually have to get a manager and an, a- and an agent and everything. But uh, on the way up, they're not paying anyone. They're kind of just doing their thing. And that's we, we, we would book acts. Acts would get booked at the Wonder Ballroom. And I'd be like, who the hell are these people? And the show sold out in two days. What, what the hell? And huh. we were like, that's when we started realizing there was a whole new model for uh, the entertainment world and booking artists. I mean, even Justin Bieber, right? He came out of YouTube videos. It's crazy. Mm. And so the old models are just thrown out the window. And it's going to change some more, I'm sure, over the next decade. So what's working now is going to change into something else. There'll be another platform. It's, it's inevitable. Nothing's going to be static. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how artists, uh, I guess, adjust to that. Because, I mean, it seems like the the you know biggest uh, you know artists at the moment, you know, super mainstream artists. Like uh, one of the trends I've seen with you know the albums is 
it's it's like you know more and more songs it's like uh more and more diluted projects you know that they put out and it's you know for the stream so i guess you know even though the whatever it is that we calculated the seven eight cents you know if if it's literally hundreds of millions of people who are listening i guess you could turn a you know somewhat healthy profit off of that but i'm still you know i'm sure they're probably making just as much if not way more with tours and endorsements and and everything yep. that comes with that yeah and then there's licensing uh you know still you're still paid if your song's played on the radio you're still paid pretty well if you have a hit song on a pop station a 103 or a z100 you're still paid well but the um and then there's licensing if your song is used in a tv show or a movie so there's still ways for uh artists or writers musicians to make money besides touring it's just that the per the sale of music cds lps whatever it was digital downloads was so big that yeah. uh you know that's a huge chunk out of your income i mean you know if there's a song i like i go to youtube and look it up and right. listen to it, you know and you can do that too you can do playlists on youtube so yeah it's, it's really you know it's going to change again i don't know where it's going to lead but i'll tell you ticket prices will keep going up you mm. know because artists are going to just need to make the same or more money ticket prices will continue to rise and mm. uh People will continue to pay it because really it's it is a unique experience and you can't get the experience of being in a communal situation with live music in front of you except that it, you know that one night you're there and every night is different so yeah yeah and i'm curious you know as far as with with what you've noticed with just the music industry the the entertainment industry how are you know we talked about uh, you know, kind of Instagram and, and SoundCloud, kind of these newer platforms that that people um, kind of can gain exposure on. But how are, you know, as, as a new artist who's actually trying to, to turn a profit, you know, would you kind of point them in the direction of, you know, more, you know, focusing on the the branding so they can really, you know, sell a lot of merch and, you know, touring? I mean, it seems like you have to almost, um, now that now that we know this about, you know, not being able to make money selling CDs, you got to completely, you know, reshape the way, you know, you're going about trying to build a following for yourself as an artist. Yeah, I don't know how people, I mean, I'm, you know, I didn't build Pink Martini as a brand. I came aboard when they were, you know, at the pinnacle. And I rode that, rode that wave for seven and a half years. And they're still, you know, they just did three nights at the Hollywood Bowl. And so they're still riding high. I don't, you know, and they were, uh, they were marketed initially to an NPR crowd. That's how they got their mm. fan base. So they had an educated, well-heeled crowd, uh, the NPR crowd. That's, that was their angle for getting national and then ultimately international fame. A, a, a local artist, like, you know, the thing I always tell people is there's only so many nights and so many stages for the talent in the country, you know, a venue has 365 nights a year. They don't want to fill all of them anyway, so they probably want to fill 250. That's 250 artists are competing for, where are you in Florida? Let's say the, the Jackie Gleason Theater in Miami. 
200, there's 250, 300 slots a year for that venue. And artists are all competing for that slot. So, and that's established artists because it's a, it's a major room. Mm-hmm. I don't know how emerging artists struggle and uh, claw their way to get notoriety, but I, I, my hunch is playing in local clubs is great to get, get you the experience as a live performer. But I'm thinking Instagram, YouTube, and all the other platforms, SoundCloud, uh, putting your music out there is what's really going to launch somebody. Right. And that's hard. I've never, I've never built an act on the way up. I built a venue, but I've never built an artist on the way up. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting note. I'm you curious. Know, like, you know anyone who has? <clears throat> who's built someone? Uh... That's a skill. I mean, my stepbrother manages yeah. Cheryl Crow and Gary Clark. <coughs> Excuse me. But for those two, he's been with Cheryl Crow for 35 years. But for those two, he's tried to launch other artists that just never took off. So mm. interesting. That, that's the uh, that's the challenge there. Right. I wanted to ask you uh, kind of more of a, a kind of big picture thing as far as, you know, your career and, and, and what you've been able to do, um, you know, on a few uh, podcasts ago. Um, I, I interviewed one of my, uh, friends who I used to write, uh, for the, the Emerald with, you know, the university of Oregon student newspaper. And he's now, um, actually doing a internship with the wall street journal. And basically this past summer, he was working, uh, with a couple other co-authors on this article, um, that was basically focused on kind of exposing these, um, these debt repayment uh scams you know these companies that are popping up that basically are you know saying oh you know we'll pay back your college debt you know uh you know or we'll take away a a good chunk of it or whatever and Mm -hmm. pretty much you know the conclusion of all that research and and you know their investigations into it it's like those companies really can't offer anything that the government can't like they're just you know basically complete scams and I mean, we, we had a good, you know, dialogue going as far as, you know, just as far as, you know, with the, with the raising kind of costs of tuition, you know, whether some people, you know, may be dissuaded, you know, now from going into certain professions, because we see, you know, especially the graduate degrees, how much money they are. And, you know, I'm curious as far as with your path, you know, with like, how, how much do you think you applied? Because you... You you have your ba- uh, bachelor's, right? Bachelor's. Did you go BA in uh, telecommunications with a minor in visual art? And you hadn't you didn't go into like a master's program at any point, right? I dabbled with it, and I was so sick of school. I just said, I I did some graduate classes, but I didn't want to pursue a graduate degree. Right. I just do school anymore. And so I just got scrappy, lived lean, and dabbled, acted in shows. It, well, in college, I had 20 hours a week of work study. And sometimes, one time, I'd be with a lawyer in her mm-hmm. office, which had no interest. I had no interest in legal stuff. And she knew I didn't and was not happy that I was the <laughs> one that got picked to be her assistant. But so be it. Um, 
she's dead now anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, then, uh, but most times what I did for my work study, I would work in the theater box office, um, build sets. I would just do whatever I could do on the side. At U- the University of Oregon, I both built sets and I, bu- and I worked in the box office. And um, those were all really helpful. That was a good plus of, of uh, having work study was I got to dabble in arts administration or mm-hmm. what, some, some form of it. Uh, and then when I left college and graduated, I started, when I moved to Portland in 81, I started slowly immersing myself in arts and getting a hustle together. I had a line of postcards. I did a line of postcards for about, I don't know, five years. Um, a line of novelty earrings with a partner. We had a hustle uh, on, on stuff. And we, we made a living, modest living doing our stuff. And then I started migrating towards theater. And then from that, I landed a job as the uh, general manager of a dance theater space in Southeast Portland, the Echo Theater. That led to being the executive director of the Portland Area Theater Alliance, which was a support uh, organization for theater companies. And I took that job and I ran with it and uh, created Portland's first half price day of show ticket outlet for shows and uh, ran that for about three or four years. And then uh, I just started bouncing around different nonprofit arts groups. I constantly got hired and my reputation was solid enough. So um, I managed so, chamber orchestras, uh, choirs, uh, and then I ended up at the Wonder. And now I'm back managing uh, the I'm executive director of the Portland Saturday Market, which is, again, supporting and celebrating local artists. So I've always kind of stayed in that support or celebration or producing artists. And then I had my own production company since 1987, where I presented national acts that with, I, it was entrepreneurial. I, my own money, I produced performing artists, uh, singers, comedians, um, some of whom made it big. And, uh, I did. I, I would still do it occasionally. If, if the, I haven't done one in a couple of years, two years ago, I produced Ari Shapiro from NPR's All Things mm-hmm. Considered in his one-man mm-hmm. cabaret show. But I'm so busy now, I don't really dabble much with the impresario part of my life. But if the right act comes along, I certainly will. Right. So when you look back on it now, do you think you'd be able to do what you do and have gotten where you are if you didn't go to college? Or do you think you actually did learn skills? If I wanted to be strictly in the music world, like a touring musician or working in a venue, Mm -hmm. I think just like banging it out, selling tickets, working in a club, I could probably have achieved the same thing. I could not without my degree. Uh, have got, gained entree into the nonprofit arts world, being an executive director of a nonprofit. I, there's no way I'd, I'd get my foot in the door. Sure. Because so, I, I went back and forth between the for-profit op entertainment world and the nonprofit arts world. I, I keep going back and forth. And um, I don't think I could have done the nonprofit world without an education behind me. I just don't think I would have even 
been eligible to apply for the job. And mm. that's a VA right now. A lot of the nonprofit jobs I'm seeing, they want master's preferred VA mandatory. Back when I was mm. doing these mid-sized and small nonprofits, um, it was a VA. They didn't even ask for a master's, but now they're asking for master's. And so I know how expensive it is to go to school now. When I went to school, it was cheap, but the um, in the state university system, but the times have changed. I mean, when I went to school, it was about $1,000 a year for tuition. So mm. you could leave school without debt, and then you could, you know, experiment and poke around and see what what you like. Now you're leaving school with, you, some people leaving school with 50 grand in debt. You got to get right. a job. Right. Yeah, and that's that's what we had talked about. I mean, it's it's crazy to me that, especially, I mean, working, I can't imagine that, you know, I, I don't know what you'd be doing uh, for a nonprofit with a with a master's degree, but I mean, can you imagine spending all of that money to get the master's degree, and then you choose to, I mean, um, you know, maybe honorable work, you know, helping the community with the nonprofit, but that's how are you ever going to pay off a master's degree? You know, it, it seems like it's it's gotten yeah. to a point where it's like you know you really have to really really think hard whether i guess a degree is going to get you to the the point where you're trying to get to or if you can somehow navigate there without it well i have friends that graduated college in 93 that are still paying off their student loans and hardly making a dent in it yeah so it's a and that was back back then when i mean how much was how much was tuition then i think they racked up like Twenty five thousand, half as much as the typical one now. Right. Uh, yeah. Debt load now. It's really. I mean, it's a different world, which shapes. You know, uh, the economy. Uh, what's the word? Uh, the the economy forces you to make choices in it as an individual. Well, when I was experimenting and doing stuff in the arts in Portland in the eighties getting my feet wet, getting experience, you know. I'm back. Oh, there you go. All right. Sweet. Sorry, I'm popular. <laughs> um, when I, you know, when I came, when I um, was doing shows, back in the 80s and 90s, I didn't have student debt. My overhead was low. So it, and it, I, I was allowed to kind of lightly experiment with stuff and get, get my feet wet in terms of, uh, you know, honing my skills for how to put on a show and how mm -hmm. to do lighting. And I don't think I could do it now. I think I'd mm -hmm. have to be... I know I can't because I have people that work for me that are in their 30s that have to work full-time jobs because they have student loans. Or one of them did the option of working for a nonprofit for 10 years to erase her student debt. Oh, okay. So she's taking, I think she has a master's. I haven't really, I should look at her resume one more time. But um, she wanted to make sure we were an Oregon nonprofit because... She's on, I think, year nine. 
And so she sticks with us or another nonprofit for another year or two. Her student debt is erased, which is awesome. I didn't know that was an option. I don't know if it's yeah, still available. I, I never heard of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, wherever she went. I don't know if it's a federal thing or if it was something for the university she went to. But the fact that she could um, work for a nonprofit for 10 years and erase her debt, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. You know, if that was the case when I was in my 20s or 30s, I would have done work for nonprofit theater companies. Even, you know, my first job was $5 an hour managing the Echo Theater in Southeast Portland. This was in 1987. Um, but my rent was 250 a month, so I could kind of make it work. But I had to have side hustles. But um, if I had student debt on top of it that I had to pay off, I don't know how I'd do it. I don't know. Mm. I would be a different person and have a different career path for sure. There's no way I would have had the luxury of bouncing around and not being beholden to a big paycheck because I have debt. I was able to live kind of cheaply and experiment and find find my own path. And it's harder and harder now, especially in major cities. Those opportunities are dwindling at best. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems especially, I mean, since so many of the jobs that you'd want to get are, are requiring, it seems like more and more, you know, degrees, higher and higher education, but at the same time, often, you know, not really making up for it in terms of the salary. It's like, you know, I, I wonder if we're going to see a change in, you know, say the number of doctors or lawyers, you know, uh, like the medical or, or legal fields, which, you know, require these advanced degrees, you know, that, you know, or people know, you know, that they're going to be stuck with, you know, a certain amount of debt. And it's like, I feel like people are going to be going to start to really look harder at those because I feel like those are, you know, well-respected jobs, you know, that, you know, it seems like, you know, parents are definitely going to encourage their kids to, you know, become a doctor or lawyer or something. But then, you know, when you think about it, it's like, is that, is that even a, a financially savvy move anymore? I mean, because you have to be pretty confident that, you know, at least you'd be a, you'd, you know, be very good at that job and be able to do whatever, you know, your private practice or something, you know, something in order to end up making it pay off. But you're, you're kind of taking a gamble, it seems like there, you know, well, if you're, you're not doctor, able to pay it off, you're. Yeah. If when you're a doctor or a dentist or anything like that, you're in it for the long haul, but you're spending right. so much money. But I, you know, I question if you're going to get a master's in social work, you know, are you, even if you get an 80 grand a year job and you got a huge debt, because I think, I don't really know this for a fact, but isn't it like, as the more you make, the more you pay, the more your debt load is, you have to pay it back faster. Or do they give you a set amount to pay back monthly? I have no idea. Uh, I'm on a monthly payment thing. Yeah. Regardless of how much you're making, you got to pay it back. It's like a mortgage. Right. Yeah. I, th I think they do some kind of hardship thing, you know, if you are not able to pay that back, but you know, obviously I don't know if there's repercussions for that. I was seeing, uh, I'd actually just watched this. I think it was like a CBS news or ABC. Uh, it was like a short video the other day. It was about, you know, uh, a college, I forgot what it was, Green Green Mountain State or something, some college, I think in North Carolina that 
recently shut down and it was basically you know because um you know in, in large part you know they had a very high tuition but what they were actually getting from students was so little it you know i think the tuition was like something like 32 grand but they were saying the average student only actually paid them you know like 10 or 12 grand a year so it's like they're you know assuming that i guess through the government that the the kids are going to be able to pay off all that debt but in the end the college they they, they were losing money you know that they closed doors because of that so i think it's not only changing the game for for you know students and prospective uh students but also just you know the, the colleges the institutions of, of higher education yeah I, I I think this is unsustainable, and it all, I also think um, it impacts probably not pop music as much, but it impacts theater because uh, and other forms of and classical music and other forms of nonprofit and fine arts, let's say, because they don't traditionally pay that well, but the cost to getting your foot in the door with an education that you'll need to put on your resume to get, even apply for the job is going to be so imbalanced that I don't know how, how much longer it can be sustained. And I'm just fortunate. I got out of school with, I think, $2,000 in debt, maybe. I mean, I worked summers. It was a different ball game back then. I worked summers and I worked 20 hours a week work study. And my parents paid the $1,000 a year tuition. And I was able to leave with minimal debt, uh, the mm. room and, and books and mad money, as they say, was enough to... I mean, I, I incurred very little debt and it really allowed me to experiment with how I wanted to approach my career in arts and entertainment. And if I graduated today, it would be a different world. I would not be happy. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'd wouldn't I mean, be, it, I'd, I'd miss opportunities. Right. No, and I mean, it seems like the, the experimentation with different sort of uh, career options uh you know, just, you know, doing different things that wouldn't really be possible if, you know, say you did go like the med school route or something where you're committing for, you know, I think, you know, what, 10 years or something, you know, with all the, um, the internships and, and, yep. you know, shadowing and stuff. It's like, you don't get to, I mean, you could back out of it, but then you're even in a worse spot, it seems like, because, then your little experiment just cost you, you know, a hundred grand or something. Whereas, yep. you know, if you backed out of med school, whereas, you know, if, if, as you're saying, you kind of take on, you know, a much lighter debt and then just kind of, you know, you're doing jobs that, you know, aren't going to make as much as, you know, a doctor, but at the same time, you're kind of building up your experience, figuring out how you can eventually like do entrepreneurial things, and actually, you know, make that kind of money, right, without having to take on that sort of level of, you know, that rigorous kind of academic path and, you know, education and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I, um, I'm glad I, ended, I, I never had a really strong career path. I just kind of bounced along and found opportunities that were intriguing and lucked out and got the jobs. And I mean, I think there's been six months out of my entire career where I didn't have work and I was a little freaked out, mm -hmm. but I just, you know, I've left jobs and people are like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. 
and then I just find figure it out. Fine. Yeah, but people are like, you're leaving your job with no prospects. I'm like, no, I'll find something. And I always yeah, did. That, that does seem like a like a scary kind of uh, proposition or thing to think about. Like I, for me to do that, yeah, that uh, I mean, because you know, uh, when I left college, you know, I had that job that was already lined up. You know, the job mm-hmm. in Seattle where I had already, you know, uh, signed the you know signed the contract before spring break. So it was, I feel like I've always, you know to some degree or another, I was kind of, uh, you know, methodically like thought things through a little bit, you know, like had the next move planned, but yeah, that's, that's gutsy to just, uh, you know, I've done it a bunch of times, like find the next thing, but yeah, I did it. I've done it a bunch of times since I've been in my thirties. I just, when the job doesn't feel right and I feel like it's time to move on for whatever reason, like, one of my one of my old factors used to be if I know what I'm doing April 10th next year at this time, I don't want this job. If it's that become that rote and that mechanical that it's like there's no new challenges or surprises or possibilities, then I'm like, I got to get out of this job. And that's that's usually when I quit or if there's a change in how things are going and I don't agree in the direction things are going, I respectfully resign. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't have student debt, so I always have a little cushion of money to fall back on. If I had student debt that I had to pay back every month, I didn't have as much money in the bank because I have the student debt, that would probably change my focus. But I've been fortunate enough to basically walk away and fall into something else within the, you know, days, weeks, or months. And I've never been on the edge financially. And I've always ended up finding jobs I wanted. I also feel like when you have a job, you don't have time to look for another job. And sometimes mm-hmm. the best thing to do is to leave the job, so you're forced to find the job you need. Uh, it, mm-hmm. That's a, that's kind of a little luxurious in terms of saying I'm going to cut, cut off all income until I get something I want. But that's how I played it. Right. And it's worked. It's worked out well for me in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I can see. I, I, mean, again, yeah. I got one more. I think I have one more job in me. I don't know how I'm 61. I don't know if I'm going to work till I'm 66 or 70. I don't know. Depends on my health. And if, uh, you know, right now I have a quote unquote nine to five job. That's kind of hard for me because I'm so used to working in music venues where I'll go in at like 10, leave at three, come back at six. And never minded working nights. I never mind working weekends. Nine to five is kind of like the death knell for me. And so now I'm I'm in a mostly nine to five job, and that's proven very challenging. Like getting up at seven, making a sandwich, going to work. It's not really the most joyful thing, but the job itself is rewarding. It's supporting 200 plus artisans in the metro area, the Portland metro area. But the office side of it, the the const, you know, the nine to five, you're doing it now. It's challenging. It's just kind of like. Someone said to me, it's really hard for single people to own a house, have a full-time job, and get all their stuff done. Like, when do you have time to exercise? When do you have time to grocery shop? When do you have time to do your yard work? You're working 40 hours a week, and I'm realizing that now. It's really hard to have some downtime because there's always stuff to do on my days off. So there's really yes. not a whole lot to uh, read. I can definitely that. relate to that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 
it's hard. Yeah. But it used to be that one, the dad worked, made four, worked 40 hours a week, made enough money to support a family. But those days are long gone. Long yeah. Gone. But, I, you know, I'm so glad I chose the path I did. I got to, I've met amazing people. I've worked with amazing artists. I've had uh, really fun times like that could not be replicated in any other career choice. I've had amazing, a pretty amazing ride. And, um, you know, and it's not working with celebrities. I don't care about any of that. Celebrity is, is who cares? It's, they're just another person. They got lucky. Uh, yeah, Lauren Bacall, who was an old 40, uh, movie actress, and she, you know, she would just live in New York and walk into the deli and get her food, you know, like anyone else who lives in New York. But uh, <clears throat> she said, fame is an accident. And that's how it was felt about people who are famous. They got lucky. They hadn't had a good accident, as it were. Doesn't make them better or more amazing. They just got lucky because there's talented people that never make it. And so uh, I'm happy for her that I've had the chance to work with famous people. And but there's been more to it than that. It's just been really fun to put on shows and put on events that are successful and that people really appreciate and really want to come to. So I've been really lucky. Part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you've had a, a really cool journey, and thanks for, you know, sharing that tonight. So absolutely, I and I encourage good. people who want to go into arts and entertainment to talk to professionals in the in the field. And if you really want to do it, you know, there's if you're a hard worker and you're honest and you're uh, you can show up on time and have a good disposition, and people want to work with you, you can definitely. Uh, Start working in clubs and work your way up and get a, you know, if you want to be in the music business, immerse yourself in the music business. There are opportunities. Um, you just have to work your way up from the bottom up or know somebody. Awesome. But I, all success is in, I'll leave you with this, all success. I always think what makes a successful person in any field is uh, being reliable right and um able to build relationships um because that's business it's transactional so you know having a good reputation and having good relationships will take you far and um you know i can't be i can't say i regret anything i've ever done i've had a really good a really good run in my career and I'm happy I've got to be a, a part of the arts and entertainment world. Great. Is there anywhere you want to uh, direct people as far as if they want to find either Pink Martini or Wonder Ballroom or I don't know, it's your chance to, if you want to plug anything. Uh, there's PortlandSaturdayMarket.com, of which I'm currently go. the director. There's one you can check out. Uh, we're the largest and longest running open air crafts and artisan market in the country currently in our 46th year and uh you can check out wonderballroom.com that's the room i helped create back in 2005 uh what else is there and pinkmartini.com if you want to check out the band and see where they're playing and pretty much where they're playing is where i've been with them they, they kind of every two years play the same circuit and so uh you can see where the band's been and where i was i mean uh and what else? Those are the major places I've I've worked that I'm cool. proud of, and I, I kind of, you know, and always 
with almost every job, except with the exception of one. Um, when I'm interviewed for jobs, and this might be an interview tip, maybe you can just roll your eyes and not even worry about it. But um, when people ask, what do you hope to bring to the job? I always say, and I mean this earnestly, and I feel like I always do accomplish it. I want to, like a Boy Scout, I want to leave this position and this organization or this group better than I found it. And if you can really take that to heart and really make that work for you, you'll go far because it's it's not a canned answer. I mean, it's something you should strive for in your life. And you should really, any endeavor you do, make it better, make yourself better in the process and leave it better. Awesome. Awesome. Sweet. That's my well, yeah. Yeah. Howie, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. And if you do want to, uh, you know, follow us on Instagram, Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. Um, also make sure to like and subscribe on our YouTube channel. Uh, it's also, ro or the YouTube channel is just Roscoe's Wetsuit. So there's going to be new videos, new uh, episodes every week. So make sure to stay tuned. All right. Thanks again, Howie. Thanks for talking to me. Talk to you soon. All right.